You're listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. But I am a good horse trainer. <laughs> That's my thing. That's my niche in life. And I, I love sharing it with people. And when somebody has a problem and I can help them figure it out with, with their horse, uh, that's that really makes me feel good. You mentioned that you bought a horse and he said, oh, that, that was mine. Can you tell us what happened after that and how your friendship evolved? He loved being around horses. That was his, that was his happy place. Nobody bothered him. The horses didn't ooh and ah over him. He was just another human in the world of horses. You know, I, I talk to him all the time. I talk to him even now. I talk to him all the time. What do you, what do you think? I did ask David for help. I just said, David, I, I ran in a very big race shortly thereafter. And I said, David, man, I take all the help I can get on this one. He did not want to be Keith Partridge. He wanted to be Mick Jagger. He didn't want to be Keith Partridge. Keith Partridge held him back. He never got the respect he probably deserved and really wanted as a rock and roller. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode in the David Cassidy Connections podcast with memories and tributes from friends and fans about what he meant to them and how he inspired. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and today I'm thrilled to welcome my guest, one of David's best friends. They were inseparable and shared a passion for thoroughbred horse racing. David was regarded by my guest, veteran horse trainer Gary Contessa, as the consummate student of pedigrees. Growing up, David would watch his cowboy hero Roy Rogers on television and used his signature song title Happy Trails as his sign-off on letters and album liner notes. One of his favourite movies was The Home Stretch, which starred Maureen O'Hara, and he also narrated seven stories from the popular children's adventure series Billy and Blaze about a boy and his pony. David was a long-time breeder within the New York programme. His thoroughbreds were trained mainly by Gary, who has more than 2,300 winners in his portfolio. Gary shares how he worked his way up the ladder from walking and grooming horses to becoming a leading trainer in New York. He reveals his greatest moments as a trainer, how he overcomes his fears and the special bond he shared with David. He also talks about the I Think I Love You Animal Foundation established in David's memory and his vision for the future of racing with greater fan engagement at the tracks. He closed his public stables in 2021 but soon returned to training in a private capacity for Nick Beaver where his race winning success has continued. We started by talking about the importance of being successful. How important is it for you to be successful? It's, it's very important because being a horse trainer, or in any aspect of life, I, I like to be successful, but being a horse trainer is very close to being the coach of a football team or the coach of a soccer team. And, and if you don't win, what happens? the owner fires the coach. Like we just finished American football. Uh, this weekend was the last weekend. And the very next day on Monday, uh, eight coaches were fired. 
eight, eight teams of the 32 football teams in the United States, eight teams fired their coaches for not being having productive years. And some of those coaches were pretty damn good. They just had a bad year. So no matter how good a horse trainer you are, there's two things that you you can't make a slow horse run fast. That can't be done. A slow horse is a slow horse. And you're only as good as your horses. So if I have a barn full of bad horses, um, I could look, you know, people begin to get the idea that you're a bad horse trainer. And that's not true. You just, if you don't have good horses, (laughs) they're going to make you look bad. The buck stops with the coach. It does. It does. And, And some of those coaches that were fired in American football, they they had really god awful teams there was no you know there was there was nothing positive about the team that they worked for so i'm sure i'm sure a few of them are actually relieved to pass that that team over to somebody else yeah. but uh, horse trainers are no different horse trainers you got to deliver or you're going to be out of job when i was a public trainer i had 30 or 40 different owners, you know, and David was one of them. If one, if I was non-productive for an owner and he fired me and I lost five or six horses, I still had a hundred horses for other people. Like you wouldn't feel it uh, so much, but if I get fired by this guy, um, I'm unemployed all my life for 40 years. I've had a, you know, 40 different owners, you know, I've been what you call a public trainer. And uh, it's been a very good life that I had. And my new job is just training horses for one particular owner. But I like have I like training for a private owner because it's just one. It's he, you know, once I get to know him, I know what he wants. He knows what I'm capable of, and and we have a pretty good relationship. So it's been very successful so far. I had retired from training. And I was at a horse sale and we talked and we hit it off. And he asked me if I would manage his stable for him, just oversee it. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And then after a couple months of, you know, of our interacting, he said, how would you like to, would you consider training for me privately? And I said, yeah, if we could work it out, you know, financially and logistically, I'd be, I'd like to, and it's worked out quite well. How many winners have you had with him? Now, keeping, keeping in mind, we have a very small stable. Uh, We've had 19 since uh, July. So that's very big. We won two major stake races and total of 19 races with a handful of horses with like a dozen horses. So it was a good, good gear for us. Because you do have a pretty impressive track record. 2,300 winners that you've trained? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a good life and I've had a good run. Yeah. And uh, I, won't have, I won't have those kind of numbers anymore, but uh, I've, I enjoyed getting to those numbers, that's for sure. Yeah. I have more wins than most jockeys and they ride a lot, you know. Probably the most intense athletes. Uh, they're very intense athletes and every once in a while we want to choke the hell out of them. Because <laughs> the jockeys have a way of uh, of uh, getting their point across. Let's put it that way. Sure. But they're good. They're good. I, I enjoy the I enjoy the camaraderie with them. You once said that your most rewarding experience in thoroughbred racing was your first win as a trainer. Does that still hold? Does that still hold true? Well, I have I have two um, 
things in my training career that I really enjoyed. First, when I went on my own, a trainer that was pretty much a household name in the United States in the 80s, a guy named John Campo. He trained Pleasant Colony. He won the Triple Crown. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a good trainer. He was one of my biggest supporters. And he said, let me tell you something, kid. You know, he's one of those guys with the big cigar. Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you what's going on. And he'd say, Gary, whatever you do, make sure the first horse you run as a trainer wins. I don't care how long you got to wait. Make sure you win with your first horse. Because then everybody will notice who you are. And they'll say, who is this guy? He just won a race. He's, I've never seen him before. And, you know, interestingly... John Campo sent me six horses that he owned himself. And my first win was for John. And he told me, and it was my first horse. So the first horse I ran as a trainer won. And it was for John Campo, who was, you know, one of the top trainers in the country at the time. So he, it, was, it was good. You know, it, it worked out very well for me. Yeah. And then the other thing was I had a filly. Uh, a very good filly named Do It With Style. And she won, uh, she won a bunch of stake races. And every time a jockey would hit her with the whip, she would swish her tail. And the more that she raced, the worse that, that little trait became. And she didn't like it. And so in the Comely Stakes, we were running against uh, uh, just a, the best filly in the country. And I said to Julie Crone at the time, I said, Julie, whatever you do, show this Philly the whip, but don't hit her with it. Well, turn it for home, do it with stylus, five lengths in front. And she's, she's, she's going to win the race. And Julie hits her with the whip and she sulks. And that, that little sulk gave another horse the, the chance to beat her. And, and she lost. She finished second. Well, we went on to the Ashland Stakes that year in Kentucky, and I knew in my heart that she hated the whip, and I knew in my heart that jockeys are so whip conscious that you can't tell a jockey not to hit a horse with a whip. If things get tough, the jockey's going to pull out the whip. So I got a little bourbon courage down in Kentucky, had a few bourbons, and I called the stewards and I said, I'm going to take the whip away from this filly. This jockey's going to ride this filly with no whip. And she won the Ashland Stakes, and she became the first three-year-old filly in racing history to win a grade one stake with no whip. And that, that's my greatest moment because I knew it, but it was, she won by this much. And if I had lost by this much, the press would have had a field day with me. He took the whip away and she lost by a head, but I took the whip away and she won by a head. That was a good moment. That was the greatest moment in my career. Trainers are very, uh, they don't want to take the whips away. You know, trainers don't, you know, I, I imagine I had, an, uh, I inspired someone somewhere to to maybe make a decision that is not a popular one, right. but I don't know, not, not that anyone's ever told me, you know? So, you know, I do videos. I have videos on YouTube. I have about, I probably have a hundred videos on YouTube, everything from feeding horses, training horses, gate, hall of fame, just everything. 
And um, quite often I run into people in different parts of the country that say, oh my God, I love your videos. They're so cool. Uh, you know, I didn't know this. I, I, I study your videos, they're fantastic. And then I did a confirmation video. I have a, um, a skeletal horse's leg. And I brought out the horse's leg, the skeleton of the horse's leg that a veterinarian had given me. It's a real skeleton. And I did a, I did a, a video about this skeleton and how the knee bone attaches in here and the movement of the leg and everything. And overnight, it had over 50,000 views on YouTube. And I get a call from the Hong Kong Jockey Club. And the Hong Kong Jockey Club wants me to take my leg and come to Hong Kong and do that same video demonstration for the trainers in Hong Kong. So it, it's, you know, so I love sharing this game. I love talking about this game. I love sharing it with people. And that makes me feel really good when somebody says, hey, I saw your videos and man, I didn't realize that. And they're so helpful and blah, blah, blah. I get, I get texts and emails from trainers in Dubai and uh, North Africa and South Africa and all over the place. Hey, this is my problem. What do you think I should do? And I love that. Oh. I love helping other people with their horse related problems. Cause I really, I'm not good at a lot. Okay. I, I'm, I have a little bit of knowledge about everything, <laughs> but I'm a hell of a horse trainer. I, I know horses inside and out. And it's probably the only thing I did, you know, like everybody says, Oh, you're not the greatest father because you're never around or you're not, you know, you're not this, you're not that. But I am a good horse trainer. <laughs> That's my thing. That's my niche in life. And I, I love sharing it with people. And when somebody has a problem and I can help them figure it out with, with their horse, uh, that's, that really makes me feel good. I want, I want to do that as often as I can. That is job satisfaction. Yes. That, you know, you're passing that on to other generations as, right. as well, to your apprentices, the apprentice jockeys, everybody in every aspect of yeah, horse racing is learning it, from you. And be it owners, owners watch those videos and, and learn from it. And, and you know, little trainer, up and coming trainers or people that are thinking of becoming trainers. I mean, it's just, it's great. It, it's really, I really had fun doing them and I really have fun sharing them. Murray Acklin, who is the president of the Otago Race Club in New Zealand. He gave an interview a few years ago and he reflected that the connection between a trainer and horses is probably greater than parents and their children. Do you agree it's with true. that observation? Yes. Because you got to understand, a horse is a 1,200-pound athlete. It's probably safe to say, unless somebody races elephants somewhere, that a horse is the biggest actual athlete that is just an athlete. And so imagine, you know, a baseball player or your kid or, you, you know, your kids tell you things and you react to them and you can help them with things and whatnot. Horses do not have any way of communicating with a trainer other than subtle hints. And I mean, you know, horses, 
horses have a really tough um, constitution and they have, they carry a lot of endorphins in their body. And for a horse, a horse could have a, something that is very painful to him and you don't see it. And you have to pick it up in different ways. You, you have to watch your horse train and you get to see him every day. And he, and he, at a certain part of the racetrack, he's always on his right lead. And suddenly today he's on his left lead. And that's all you're going to get. Then he can't say my elbow hurts or my knee is bothering me today. Or man, I got a stinging feeling in my foot. I, maybe I stepped on a rock. They can't tell you. And they're very strong animals. So they really can't show you either. But as a trainer, you have to pick up on everything that horse is trying to relate to you, everything that horse is trying to give you to help him be a better horse. So horse trainers, it's easy. My kids say, dad, I need 300 bucks. I give him 300 bucks. A horse doesn't tell you anything. They don't tell you, they can't tell you what they need. So you have to figure it out. So I wake up in the morning and I go, I go to, um, work and I spend all morning trying to figure out what's, you know, okay, the, this one's good. What's bothering this one today? I had one today. I had one today. It's six 30 this morning. Now it's 12 degrees at six 30 this morning. There's a little moisture in the track. So the track has some frozen clods in it and this big strapping colt who always goes out there and does his job and he comes back good. Today, he just didn't look the same to me. I went over him with a fine tooth comb. I could not find anything bothering him, but I know in my heart, something was bothering him today. So now I did all my due diligence. I don't have an answer, but tomorrow I was going to give him a little bit more rigorous training you know, that was the plan all week. Tomorrow is his rigorous training day. I have to sit back and say, you know what? I know I saw something today. I'm not going to give him a rigorous training day tomorrow. And I'm going to watch him very closely and see if he's himself or if he's this, you know, this horse just, just doesn't seem right to me. You know, because horses, a horse could get a tiny hairline microscope micro fracture somewhere and they feel it but they don't really feel it and then they can't tell you about it because it's very minimal it's just like a maybe like a toothache or or maybe just like uh you know anything like a to a horse it's nothing because it's a micro fracture but if you take that 1200 pound horse and you give him a rigorous training day and he just came up with a brand new micro fracture well that next day you're going to have a mega fracture and that's the that's the problem when you're a horse trainer when i get done training horses i think about the horses all day long then i go back in the afternoon and i'm very meticulous about the feed for every horse because i know what their needs are we take a lot of bloods we analyze blood all the time and I know this horse needs more calcium. This horse needs iron. This horse needs vitamin C. This So I have a very meticulous feed program that is contoured to each individual. So 
I spend a whole day thinking about horses. <laughs> and you're, you are, when you're a horse trainer, you are much more in tune to your horses than you are to your children because your children just blurt it out and then they go do something else. They don't want to hang out with dad. So, but the horse, it, it, it's a constant. We constantly have to try and figure out why something is not quite right when yes. it comes to a horse. Yes. So uh, I think about them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I put, I sleep, I sleep with a pad and a pencil next to my bed. And I'm not kidding. I'll wake up at one o'clock in the morning. I'll be like, man, I gotta, maybe I should change the shoes on that horse. And I'll write it down and go back to bed. <laughs> I'm gonna change the shoes on so But I won't be thinking about it in the morning. I think about it at the oddest times of the day and night. Yeah, horse, horse training, you really have to be in tune. And you, you know, just from results, the trainers who are really in tune and the trainers who just get the work done and then, yeah. and then walk away, you know, it's a, you could see, you can see the difference, but you got to be successful in this game. You got to be on it 24 seven. Can you walk me through where your love of the sport came from? <laughs> it's it, okay. You know, my wife is very, uh, I don't know, she's very sensitive to her surroundings. So I'm going to tell you what my wife says. My wife says I was probably Roman cavalry, or maybe I was in a past life. She seems to think I was something to do with horses in a past life. And when I grew up, I grew up on Long Island and my father was an alcoholic mailman. I mean, he used to tell us afterwards, he's been dead for about 25 years, but he used to tell, tell me that they used to throw the mail away and go to the bar. Okay. They, they were, he was the worst kind of alcoholic mailman and he was not in touch with me at all. Like he was kind of an absentee father and my mother worked her ass off. She drove a school bus you know, probably 12 hours a day, she drove a school bus back and forth, kids to school. But ever since I was born, they couldn't pass a field of horses without pulling the car over and let me go look at the horses or pet the horses. And they couldn't pass a pony ride sign without getting me a pony ride. And from, from when I was three or four years old, I was always riding pony rides and whatnot. Then we went to the World's Fair. They had the New York World's Fair. You remember they used to have World's Fairs? That was 1963. Well, I was born in 57, so I was six years old. And we went to the World's Fair in Flushing, New York, and they had pony rides. So I'm like, Mom, I got to have a pony ride. Okay, have a pony ride. Here, go with Grandma. She'll get you a pony ride. So I go over there. We pay our 5 or $6, whatever it was, and they tack up the pony. And, you know, I'm just going to ride them in a circle. You know, little kids riding ponies, it just goes around in a circle. Well, I get on the pony and the pony goes into a bucking fit. He must have been fresh or the saddle was pinching him, just whatever it was. Boom, 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 boom. Next thing you know, I'm airborne and I landed on my head. And I got a, I got blood coming down my head and everything else. And I'm crying. And I remember this. This is, this is like one of my first true memories of horses. And, and I, I wanted to, I didn't want no part of that horse. And my grandmother, who is a feisty German lady, 
and she is, you know, she is just so set in her ways. She says, you don't ever have to get on a horse again, but you got to get back on that one. And then if you want to get off, I'll let you get off after you get back on. But you're not going to lay here crying and not get back on that horse. And I honestly owe it to her because that day I could have been done with horses forever. So that was my moment. Then I realized there was a riding academy about mm, six or seven miles from my house. But I didn't know how to get there on my bicycle. I was like 10 years old. So, but it was right off the parkway, the Southern State Parkway. So I would ride my bicycle along the parkway, which is not a good idea, uh, for six or seven miles to Hempstead Lake State Park. I was 10 years old. I ride my bicycle, I pull in there, and there was this grumpy old lady that runs the riding academy. And I said, I don't have any money, but I would love to work for you in exchange for being able to ride. She said, you come here every Saturday and every Sunday morning and you can clean all the stalls. There were 50 of them. I cleaned 50 horse stalls every morning and you can ride for free for an hour each day. And I, I'd ride my bicycle there every Saturday and every Sunday and I'd ride for an hour each day. And then, then my mother, God bless her, she, 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 the light went on that horses was something I wanted to do. So she got me riding lessons. And then I, and then just one thing led to another. Then I realized, wait a minute, I'm only 20 minutes away from Roosevelt Raceway, which was a harness track. Uh So as soon as I figured out how to get there, I'd ride my bicycle there every weekend and take care of horses for free. And because one thing about, about the horse business Nobody turns you away if you're working for free. Everybody wants you. Yeah. So, so I worked. So I was like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And then I would get on my bicycle when I was in high school. And I would ride to Roosevelt Raceway and take care of horses. And the tru- we had truant officers. And the truant officer, finally the light went on in his head. This kid's going to the racetrack. So I go to the racetrack and I'd be jogging. You know, we're in carts. You're familiar with harness racing, right? So I'd be sitting in a cart and I'd be jogging a horse and I'd look over at the gap and there's the truant officer standing there. So I would go up along somebody and I'm like, you got to get somebody over to the other side of the track to get on this horse. I'm going to jump over the fence and run home. So sure enough, I'd go around to the backside at Roosevelt Raceway We'd swap out. Somebody else would get on that horse and I would jump over the fence and get away from the truant officer. So that I've always had this tremendous attraction. But I mean, if you had to lay odds when I was a kid that I would become one of the leading trainers in the country, I had to be a thousand to one because I had no everybody in our business. You know, the great majority, I'm not going to say everybody. But the majority of the people in our business who are successful had fathers who were successful or uncles or mothers or sisters or brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a business that you hand down from generation to generation. And nobody handed, handed me uh, anything to do with horses from my family. It's, it was just kind of a, you know, it's a surprise to everybody that I saw this dream and I made it happen. And I made it happen. I left high school. When I graduated from high school, I walked, I, I walked, I drove over to 
aqueduct racetrack and I got a job at, at the very bottom walking horses, you know, and, and, but I walked horses better than anybody else. Then I groomed horses better than anybody else. Then I was a foreman better than anybody else. And then, and then I just, so I, I just had, there's this ladder, but it's not a steep ladder. It's a funny business, but with any business, you know, if you are bound and determined and you're willing to give up your personal life in order to succeed, you can do it. You can do anything, whether it's being a brain surgeon or president of the United States or a horse trainer. If you're bound and determined and all you and you got your blinkers on and you just you keep that vision straight and you're willing to make sacrifices, you could be anything you want to be. I talk to my kids every year. The kid, my my son's school wants me to talk to. My son goes to a uh, uh, a military style academy. It's not a military academy, but it's disciplined. And every year they want me to come in and talk to the new class because because it's true. There's nothing you can't be if you put your mind to it, no matter who you are. You might not be big enough to be a football player or small enough to be a jockey, but with the exception of a few very particular futures, you could be anything. There's nothing you can't be if you really want to be it. When you were going through those early experiences and when you left school, who was your mentor? You know, I, 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 I honestly, I didn't have a mentor because my father was disconnected from my life. My, I would say my mentor has always been my mother. And when I say that, it's because I took a path in life that there were no other kids on that path with me. You know, all my, when I left school, all my friends went left and I saw that path to the right. It was a little overgrown, but I saw that path to the right and I went right. So I disconnected. I didn't have peers or anything. I just knew what I wanted. But my mother was always there for me. She supported me. We weren't rich, but if I needed something, she made sure I got it. You know, if, if there was something that could better my life, she made sure I got it. So honestly, I've always, I've always been, starting back at school, I've always been a very, um, I, I've always been very, I'm, I'm searching for the word, just on my own path. I've always followed my own calling. And I really didn't have mentors, although as I became entrenched in horse racing, I made mentors because part of my plan was I wanted everybody, all the big guys. Like in when I was when I was coming up as a hot walker, a groom, all the medial jobs on the racetrack, when I was learning my my oats on the racetrack, let's say, the great trainers were Laz Barrera, Woody Stevens, uh, Frank Martin, uh, Lefty Nickerson, Scotty Schulhofer, all these great trainers, Jimmy Pacu. And what I wanted, Johnny Campo, what I wanted was I wanted them all to know who I was. So here I am, this little snot-nosed kid who's 
you know, a good hot, a great hot walker or a great groom or a great foreman, but nobody knows who the heck I am. If I saw Woody Stevens do something that was just completely out of, out of context for what normal would be, I would go to his barn the next day and say, hey, I'm Gary Contessa. I want to be a trainer one day. I saw you do something yesterday. I was wondering if you could tell me why you did it. And Woody would tell me why he did it. Then maybe I'd see Mac Miller do something. And John Veach with Calumet Farm and Jan Newrod and John Newrod. When I saw something that I wanted clarification on, I would go to a trainer, introduce myself, and and get my answer. So I was driven. I was driven. I wanted to know everything. And people appreciated me. And I'm sure there were times when, especially John Campbell, because he didn't want to be bothered, but he liked me. Um, there were times when they saw me coming and they probably went the other way. You know, oh my God, here comes that kid again. What's he getting asked me today? But Woody Stevens, who is Hall of Fame and you know, one of the greatest trainers ever. He won, he won five Belmont stakes in a row. Woody Stevens got to the point and he did a lot of things that were off tilt, off kilter, you know, things that a normal trainer wouldn't do. Like he took Conquista Rossiello and he won the Metropolitan Mile with him. And five days later, he won the Belmont Stakes with him. He ran him back on five days rest, just things that a lot of trainers don't have the guts to do. So I kept asking him questions, asking him questions. And when I was assistant trainer for Jimmy Pacu, he was in the next barn. And I found myself asking him questions almost every day. And he had this big half gallon bottle of wild turkey, which is a whiskey, a, a Kentucky whiskey that the hard boots, you know, it's some serious whiskey. <laughs> he goes, you know what, kid? He says, you can ask me all the questions you want, but you got to do a shot of whiskey every time you ask me. So that slowed me down a little bit, but I would do a shot of whiskey. Him and his brother, Bill, would laugh. I'd ask him my question and I'd go back to work. God help me if I wanted to ask him four or five questions. That would be a problem. You mentioned Frank Martin just then. Did you not work as an assistant trainer to him? I was. I did. Yeah. I was assistant trainer for Jimmy Pacu, and that morphed into Stanley Huff, who... You know, he's he was the favorite in the Derby with Proud Appeal and he's had and reinvested and whatnot. I was working for Stanley mm. and Stanley took over as trainer for Harborview Farm. And I was lucky enough to inherit the role of training the two year olds for Harborview Farm. And I love training two year olds because I think the work that you put into a young horse builds his entire future. Mm. So yeah. that from Stanley Huff. I was assistant trainer to Laz Barrera, who had affirmed and some great horses, but he was also with Harborview. So that's how I, I had that connection. I was the two-year-old guy at Harborview Farm, and I was supplying two-year-olds to Stanley Huff and, and um, Laz Barrera. And what happened was Frank Martin noticed me. I don't know how that guy noticed me, but he's the sharpest horseman in the world. And he, and he was the most gruff guy. And he had these blazing blue eyes that could actually put a hole in you if he stared. He either turned to stone or he would burn a hole in you with those eyes. And he says, he goes, you, when you get done working, I want to see you in my office. I'm like, oh, Lord. 
what the heck did I do? Did I do something to one of his horses? What did I do? This guy's going to kill me. He was gruff. I was with Laz Barrera, and he says, I've been watching you. He says, how much money does that pay you, Laz Barrera? And I was making top dollar, which back then, this is like 1980, I was making like 500 a week. No assistant made 500 a week. He says, I give you 1500 a week. You come work for me. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I spent the next five years as Frank Martin's assistant. Yeah. And it was good five years. He was leading trainer in New York every single one of those years. I mean, he, there were days I went home with my tail between my legs because if you're Frank Martin's assistant, you get blamed for everything. If it rains, it's your fault. If it snows, it's your fault. If, uh, if he loses his pen, it's your fault. Uh, so, but you get used to him and he's also got a heart of gold. You know, at Christmas, you know, at Christmas he buys you, he gives you five or $10,000 in cash. I mean, he's just a, a tremendous man. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a funny Frank Martin story if, you, if you're up for it. Yeah, far away. Okay, so I'm Frank Martin's assistant and a guy comes on the scene in New York named Gaspar Moshera. And Gaspar Moshera came in with a plan that he's gonna claim every horse that Frank Martin runs in a claiming race. And he is picking us apart. He is picking us apart. So one day I'm walking down the horse path, I'm heading north on the horse path, and he's heading south on the horse path, Gaspar Moshera, and he says, and he sticks his hand out to me, and I don't even know him, but I know who he is because he's, he's killing Frank Martin at the claim box. And he shakes my hand and he said, you know something? You do a hell of a job for that guy. Congratulations, you're a great assistant trainer. I said, thank you, Mr. Moshera. And I kept walking, right? About an hour later, and I'm, I'm telling you, I was a mile away from the barn. An hour later, Frank Martin goes, God, he come in the office. I'm like, oh boy. I go in the office and he says, I saw you shake that hand. And I'm like, no, Mr. Martin, he shook my hand and he told me I'm doing a really good job for you. He said, are you working for him and selling him our horses? I saw red. If I didn't love Frank Martin so much, I would have punched him. And I, I couldn't believe he would accuse me of that, but I could understand it because that's, how much of an impact this particular trainer was having on us. I probably, I, you know, I wouldn't have not shook his hand anyway, you know? Mm -hmm. So I said, I was so incensed. I took my keys out, my office keys. I slammed them on his desk. I said, I quit. I stormed out. I slammed the door. I got in my car and I drove home. I lived in Merrick, Long Island. I was about 30 minutes away from Belmont Park. So I left. And we didn't have cell phones back then. We didn't have anything, you know, we just, we, if you left, you left, you were gone, right? About six hours later, uh, this guy, Bill, who works for Frank as his accountant, pulls up in front of my house with a brand new Cadillac. And he says, Mr. Martin said, if you come back to work, that's your Cadillac. And he bought me a brand new Cadillac. You went back? Yeah, yeah, of course I did. <laughs> he could have he just said, Mr. Mont says he's sorry. Would you go back to work? I would have gone back. But he gave me a, he bought me a Cadillac for going back to work. So that's the kind of guy he was. He was gruff, 
but he had a heart of gold. I mean, at Thanksgiving, we gave out a thousand turkeys to all the neighborhoods, all the poor neighborhoods outside the racetrack and at the racetrack, everybody on the track got a turkey. So he, he had a big heart. Frank Martin was the leading trainer in New York for 17 straight years. I was only leading trainer in New York for three. <laughs> so, but I did win 17 training titles and Frank, I would guess probably won 30 training titles. I don't know the exact number, but he won a lot of training titles as well. Frank Martin was just about retired. He was about 80 years old when I broke his yeah, record, right. but I wanted him there to accept the trophy with me and he, he wouldn't do it. He I wouldn't mean. come in the circle. So it bothered him a little bit, but you know, at that time I was, I had already won 17 training titles in New York. You know, I mean, I, I was, I was the leading trainer in New York. I wanted to break the record, but it was Frank Martin's record. He was still alive. And I really, I really felt bad about it because it was his record. And, and but I, I, I didn't stop trying to break the record, but I wasn't, but if I had, I not broken the record, I would have been okay with that. I wasn't obsessed with breaking that record. Jockeys have told me uh, over the years that emotionally horses can take you to a place where you've never been when they win. Does the same apply to trainers? Yes, yes. The trainers say, if you listen to every trainer out there describing winning, you know, winning is like in a one year period, inside of one year, from the day a horse shows up at our barn, the day that horse shows up at our barn, he's basically in kindergarten. And by the end of the first year of our involvement with that guy, he's graduating high school and going into college or graduating college and, and he's in the NFL draft. You know, that's the, the life of a horse. They go from being very inexperienced and not knowing anything to being college kids within one year. So you get a horse, when, when a horse comes to me, he doesn't know how to turn left. He doesn't know how to turn right. He doesn't know how to respond to hand signals that we're giving them. He doesn't know, he doesn't know how to be really close to another horse without kicking him or biting him. And he doesn't know how to be competitive. So we take that horse from kindergarten to college and winning with that horse is pure elation because it's 100% on us. We did it. And, you know, I've read trainers say it's better than sex. I'm not so sure about that, but it, you know, that's some trainers feel that way. You know, I've, I've heard, I can remember they said, you know, what, is this the greatest thing that ever happened to you? Well, outside of the birth of my children, yes, maybe, <laughs> you know? So yes, it's an elation. It, it takes you to another level. In, in the horse racing business, when, you, when you're a horse owner and your trainer calls you, you shudder. Because your trainer, nine out of 10 times, is giving you some bad news. You know, because there's a lot of bad news in this business. Your horse's foot is sore, his ankle's sore, he chipped the bone, he needs time off, he needs this, he needs that. But, but I can tell you one thing. When that horse wins, it's like an Etch-A-Sketch. Everything is erased and you're starting from day one again. Owners 
a win makes an owner forget everything negative that you've laid on him for the last year. And it, it starts, it, it starts all over again and a big win makes it all that much better. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's a complete euphoria winning a horse race. And I'm sure it is for a jockey too. Cause when I ride horses, I rode, I rode bulls because I was stupid when I was a kid. That was quite, I loved it. I loved it because it was scary. Like I'm a guy that I like to address my fears. So I am certified skydiver. I bungee jumped, but two things I did not want to do. I did not want to drop out, jump out of a perfectly good plane. And I did not want to jump off the top of a crane with a rubber band tied to my ankle, but I did it because I had such a tremendous fear of it. So I made it happen. And I did that with, as far as riding a bull too. I love rodeos. I always went to rodeos. And I, I was very good friends with a guy named Ren Lawrence. And he was the leading bull rider in the country. And this is probably 1980, maybe 1978, 79, 80. And he said, he basically said, what are you, chicken? Get on a bull, ride a bull. And I, I'll tell you what, talk about elation. Elation is getting off a 3,000 pound raging bull that wants to kill you and not getting hurt. Wow. That's elation. You know, I used, to, I used to ride a bull and I would, and from the moment they open the chute, I'm thinking, how am I gonna get off? I'm not worried about staying on, but getting off is a real problem. Because if the bull is moving left, you surely don't want to go off on the right side because you're going to meet his hind legs. So you, you, there's really, um, talk about elation. That's pretty elation. And the only reason I tell you that is because to put it into perspective with a jockey, imagine a 100 pound jockey on a 1200 pound horse in full flight gliding over the racetrack. I, I got to believe that that is a phenomenal thing because when I ride horses when we every so often when we let them go and we let them run down the straightaway you know just a, a riding horse we're we're in a western saddle and everything else but when you let them go that that feeling of the wind blowing through your hair and that horse in full flight is is a really good feeling and going up onto the gallops and waiting for the horses to come through the mist and you could hear the hooves pounding in the distance. And then suddenly they break out. I mean, and that's just a training run. As you know yourself, the euphoria of watching horses come steaming through. It's amazing how everybody does it a little differently. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I go to DeVille. I go to DeVille, and I go there for the, the sales. You got those little tiny streets, and everybody's driving cars all over the place. And there's horses walking down the streets because there's yards in DeVille. And then they're out on the beach in the morning training horses on the beach. And in the afternoon, it's all people. It's just so amazing to watch. Uh, I, I, I so loved watching the horses train in France. It was just amazing. The relationship that you have with the horses is very much like a rock star has with his audience. Yes, yes. Because you have said that you are a frustrated musician. I am. I am. David was a rock star that wanted to be a horse trainer. And I'm a horse trainer that always wanted to be a rock star. And I did have, I, you know, I play guitar 
And I played with David many, many times. You know, I played with his band. I, I had the I had the opportunity to play with Herman's Hermits, Peter Noon. I, I, I love playing with them. I played with Yvonne Elliman, Gloria Gaynor. I played with some greats, but my heart was in horse racing. So when David and I met, oh, yeah. it was like it was like a match made in heaven. David approached me. I had bought a horse at the Saratoga sale one year. And uh, David came up to me and said, ah, that was my horse. And I'm like, oh, cool, cool. And uh, I knew it was David Cassidy. But one thing I learned early on, people appreciate you more if you don't do the starstruck thing with them. You know, if you just talk to them like they're a normal person, I think he really loved that aspect of me. I treated him just like he was like my good friend. And we, you know, we hung out together and, you know, always talked horses, always. He never wanted ever to talk music. Yeah. We talked horses. We only talked music if something sparked it. Like, you know, a horse that was bred by Davy Jones won a race. And we'd talk a little bit about Davy Jones, you know, from the monkeys. Or we would occasionally talk. But David wanted to talk horses all the time. We never talked music. He, he surrounded himself with the horses. You mentioned that you bought a horse and he said, oh, that, that was mine. Can you tell us what happened after that and how your friendship evolved? Well, I was one of the leading trainers in New York. So David knew who I was and I knew who David was. But again, he just he was at the sale in Saratoga and, you know, David walks through a crowd in Saratoga and it's everybody's oohing and ahhing, right? And, but I don't do that. I, I would want him to have his own life. I want people, you know, I, I, I talk to Joe Pesci and, you know, all kinds of people that have horses in this business. Um, at the time I was training for um, Sam Shepard, the playwright. Yeah. And he was with, uh, what was her name? great one of the great actresses of all time he, he was his wife and it'll come to me but again i just i'm i just try to i i don't get starstruck you know and I, it's been a, a, a something that really works for me so david is at the sale i bought a horse that david bred i have no idea that david bred the horse because i i have a catalog and i have a visual of that horse and that's what i'm buying him off of not who bred it. That doesn't mean anything to me. I, you know, we don't go that deep. So David comes up to me. He goes, hey, Gary, I, that was my horse you bought. And I'm like, oh, great. He goes, man, you're going to love this horse. And David proceeds. And this is what David was amazing at. David was like an encyclopedia of horse racing and horse breeding. He knew everything. He tells me, okay, her first dam won 16 races on the grass and only two races on the dirt. But the grandfather of the first dam was a dirt horse only. And they none of them ever liked the dirt, uh, like the mud. And, uh, you know, the Phillies ran better than the Colts and blah, 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 blah. And he was a walking encyclopedia. So I'm taking this all in and my wife is sitting next to me and she's like poking me and she's like, is that David Cassidy? Yeah, So, um, so we're talking for an hour, hour and a half. We're having a few drinks. We're, it's just getting better and better. And man, we hit it off and we never talked music. And I never said anything to him but horses. 
And the next day at Saratoga, he shows up at my barn. Mm-hmm. And I have in front of my barn, I have a beautiful table and chairs for the owners when they come. And we put the racing form out there. And David sits down and it's seven o'clock in the morning and he's smoking a cigar that's as big as he is. And he's reading my racing form and he's like, uh, hey, uh, Gary, uh, you know, what? what about this horse? And what do you think about this horse? And you see this horse that's running in the third race today? I, I owned his mother, blah, blah, blah. And, and going on and on and on. And we're talking horses and we're talking this and we're talking that. And our friendship just blossomed at that moment. And David would come to my barn. He lived in Saratoga, a stone's throw from the track. You could see the track from his house. He would come over to my barn every single day and he would sit at that table in front of my barn while I trained horses and he'd walk out to the track with me sometimes and we'd walk back together and he'd read the racing form and he would talk about horses he'd talk about breeding he'd talk about this he'd talk about that we just became inseparable friends and we would go he would hang out at my barn all morning and I would run horses every day. I had a huge stable at the time. And we would go, I had, a, he had a box. He had a box right behind the governor's box at Saratoga, right at the finish line. And he'd go, come to my box today. We'll hang out. We would go, I'd go to his box. And, uh, you know, that, that area was kind of like a celebrity area. Joe Pesci had a box. Uh, the guy who plays house, he's an Englishman. He had a box there. And anyway, so it was it, it. But we never talked music. Now, young girls would come by. Oh, David, oh, can I have your autograph for this, that, the other? But David didn't even want to be bothered. He wanted to talk horses. And he'd come to the winner's circle with me. And he'd come down to the paddock with me. And we'd hang out all day at the races. And then slowly but surely, David and I started having, um, we started doing friend stuff. We'd go riding together, horse riding together. We'd we'd attend sales together. Then David started, then David had some partners in the horse business. We would buy horses together. David and I went to, we went to uh, a horse sale one day. And David said, "Ah, I got a couple hundred thousand we're going to spend on a horse. Let's get a good one. Well, we're watching you sit there for three or four days straight and you watch every horse run past you. You get to see him once. And you watch the horse's action, you watch his facial expressions, and you create a short list of horses. Well, uh, every racetrack has an alarm that rings when a horse gets loose. So all of a sudden, David and I are sitting in the grandstand, and the alarm goes off. So immediately, everybody looks up because you want to see what's going on with the horse get loose. Well, a horse had gotten loose on the far side, about a half a mile away from us, on the backside of the racetrack, and he's running the wrong way. He's running, uh, he's running uh, clockwise right. as opposed to counterclockwise. And he is under a full head of steam. He dumped the rider. He's got no rider on his back. The, the reins are flapping. The saddle's flapping. He runs past us. We're in the grandstand. He runs past us the, the wrong way. And I'm not kidding. You could feel like a jet just went by. You could feel the vacuum from the speed that horse had going the wrong way. And he runs all the way down the track and jumps over the fence and disappears. And David turns to me and I turn to David and he says, we're buying that horse. 
if he didn't kill himself, we're buying that horse. I said, you're damn straight we're buying that horse, David. And it turned out to be a horse named Mayan King, who we almost got to the Kentucky Derby that year. He was that good. We won stake races. Bob Baffert offered us $7 million to buy him from us. David wouldn't sell him. And he was, and, and the funny thing is, I'm like, Mayan King. Why did he name that horse Mayan King? Well, one day I go to Fort Lauderdale and David says, oh, come stay at my house. I go to, I go, he goes, you turn right on Mayan King Drive. He lived on Mayan King Drive. And I'm like, okay. So that's where that came from. And he lived right on the canal. We, you know, I used to stay at David's house all the time. And, uh, and sure enough, Mayan King turned out to be a good one. And together, so, so David and I started breeding mares together and selling the offspring. And David had an uncanny ability of knowing horse pedigrees. And he would know, I, I, I know racehorses. David knows pedigrees. Now, I know because of my life of being a horse trainer, I know enough to do really, really well on the breeding side of horses. Mm. But I don't know anything compared to David Cassidy. David knew everything about horse breeding. He, we would see a mare. He said, Gary, I want you to come see this mare. We'd go to a, a, a broodmare sale. And, you know, I would see my job was to pass that broodmare on confirmation and the way her, her muscles tie into her shoulders and the way her hip muscles. And, you know, I want, I want, I need the, the individual. David would say, Gary, this mare, the mother, the grandmother, the grandfather, the great-grandfather, the mom. He would go on for 20 minutes. We got to buy her. Well, she passed my inspection. She passed David's and uh, David's pedigree analysis, and we'd buy her. And we'd put her in full, and we'd sell the offspring. And we did. We were, it was a very lucrative business for the two of us. Why did he have such an affinity with horses the same way that you did when you were growing up? The, the funny thing is, is he was always pretty much David Cassidy, but he, I saw pictures of him at Santa Anita park with his father, Jack Cassidy, when he was like 10 years old, 11 years old. I think Jack was a, now we didn't talk about Jack because Jack had a very untimely death and, you know, David didn't talk about Jack a lot, but I know how much he loved his father. And he, I think Jack Cassidy had that same love of horses and he passed that down to David because they owned horses. His family, Jack and his brothers and whatnot, owned horses at Santa Anita when David was very, very young. And David loved it. He loved it. He was with a trainer named Bobby Frankel before Bobby Frankel was the greatest trainer that ever lived. You know, and that's arguable, but I mean, in the United States, you, you say, name the top three trainers to anybody that ever lived, Bobby Frankel's got to be one of them. I mean, the guy won everything. So um, David was with him and David ha always had this affinity for horses. Just amazing. I mean, he was, he was a walking encyclopedia the day we met and we met 25, 30 years ago. You know, we were that we were friendly that long. We were, we were together that long since, since the, I'm going to say the, 
late 80s, early 90s. David and I hooked up and we were almost inseparable, you know, and then we did a lot of cool things too. Like we'd be walking through the, through the grandstand at Saratoga and they have all kinds of shows going on. They have a band here, a band there, a band there. David and I would go up to the band and I'd grab a guitar and David would grab a guitar and we'd play a song and, and people would go crazy for that. Wow. You know, David had a, you know, he was great. One time I used to do, I used to do the uh, the derby party for one of the big uh, rate, you know, one of the big TV sports centers. Okay? okay, and they had a derby party every year in Sarasota, Florida, at a yacht club at the yacht club in Sarasota, and they they would have a huge screen TV, and you could bet on the races, and they'd have auctions, and everybody'd be drinking, and it would be a lot of fun, and we we raised money for charity doing that, and then. One day, I mentioned to David, and you know, just in passing, what I was doing this week, you know, I'm going to do the Derby party. I think it was for ESPN or whatever. And he said, uh, he said that's cool. And in the middle of the Derby party, now I'm, I'm up on stage talking horses and and running this thing. It was a fun, fun event. I loved it. And David comes walking in. The whole place goes ooh and ah. He comes up on stage and he goes, puts his arm around me. He goes this is my best friend in the whole world. Nobody knows more about horses than this guy. And we were up there and we had such a good time at that party. And he, then he came every year after that. It was great. It was really a lot of fun. He would call me up on stage and we did, um, geez, we would do a lot of songs. We'd even do, I think I love you. We did, we did all of his songs. I don't remember, you know what? I don't remember doing Gloria, but I might have but I don't remember Gloria. He called me up. I was in Westbury Music Fair and they have a revolving stage and it was David Cassidy and his band. And he's going around and he's going around and he sees me, I'm in like row six. And he goes, whoa, 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 stop the song, stop the song. My horse trainer's here and I want him to come up and play a song. And, and there's like 20,000 people there. I get up and I play a song with him. And what he loved to do was when I played with him, was go off on a tangent jamming. He would grab a guitar, he would be belting out leads, and you know, we would just play a blues progression or we would play something, and he would go absolutely nuts. Then he taught me a song that his father, he, the last album David ever put out, Songs My Father Taught Me, mm -hmm. there was a song on there and the name, I'm having a senior moment on the name, but he, he said, this is my favorite song on the entire album. I want you to learn it. And then every time he called me up, we did that song. Every time. B.B. King's in Manhattan, uh, uh, the, the music fair. Uh, he would be doing a show, just a random show in Red Bank, New Jersey, at the Count Basie Theater, wherever. If he knew I was there, he called me up and he made me into a superstar, which I loved, you know, because everybody would say, his horse trainer, what the hell's going on there? And I was kind of like, you know, I would dress, I would dress the part because I had a funny feeling just in case he called me up. I didn't want to look like a schlump. So, uh, so you know, I'd go up there. I have, I'd have cowboy boots on or whatever, and tight jeans, and I, I'd be playing, you know, I'd be playing guitar, and boy, it was great. And the oh. greatest part was, till the day David passed, women still threw their underwear and their bras at him. I would be ducking bras and underwear. I'm like, uh, you see that, David? She said, he's like, oh. 
That was that was an amazing thing. David David would get them playing. There'd be like five thongs, uh, all different size bras and everything. And the girls would be in the front row pulling up their shirts. And I'd be like, no wonder you're here, David. This is great. Well, that, that is the life of a rock musician, you see. You yes, yes. And I was headed that way. I was headed that way, but I wanted to be a horse trainer. Mm. And so... Eh, who knows? Who knows what would have happened if I wasn't? I, I would have never met my wife and had all these beautiful kids. Think of the friendship that you had with with David. You know that just spanned it, it, all it, those all those those decades. What was his special relationship with horses? David was all about racing. If I wanted, if I wanted information about something he did, I would have to start that conversation. And I didn't because I knew he didn't want to talk about it. He wanted to talk about racing. He wanted to handicap horses. He wanted to watch races. He wanted to be in the winner's circle. He wanted to do everything horses. When he came to the barn, though, he had, you could tell, the, the love he had for horses. Because he would, you know, if you come to my barn, you got... 30 or 40 horses and their heads are sticking out and we feed them carrots and we pet them and we have some that you can't pet we have some that are mean as mean as a junkyard dog you know but you know david knew the kind ones and he knew the mean ones and david would go right down the line and hug them and kiss them and interact with them and he he loved being around horses that was his that was his happy place being at the barn being around horses that was his happy place Nobody bothered him. The horses didn't ooh and ah over him. He was just another human in the world of horses when he was at the barn. And he loved that so, so much. And it's funny, 25, 30 years of friendship. And David never once talked about a movie, never once talked about the Partridge family. Never, you know, if, if something now... If some, if I asked him something about something, you know, something or other, hey, if I asked him a question, he would tell me, but he never initiated any talk about anything that he did ever, ever. He was not full of himself. He wanted to escape that. And as a matter of fact, you could tell by when you were with David, David would reach a point where he had to get away. Like, and, and that was my job. To sometimes I just had to keep people away from him. And sometimes he had just had enough, you know? So he, he, you know, he would look to me, we would get ready to go into a restaurant. He'd say, Gary, you gotta, it's been a really rough day for me today. You gotta keep everybody away from me, you know, and just kind of, just kind of hold them at bay. Don't, you know, don't be mean to anybody. Yeah. I knew what I, I needed to do and I could do it very good. I'm very good at, at help getting David what he wants. But you can believe it if she was five foot two, blonde hair, blue eyes, and really cute. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, you can, I'll talk to her for a second. <laughs> David, one thing about David, he had a good eye. <laughs> but you know what he told me? And this pertains to you. He told me, my biggest fan base in the entire world is England. He said, I have more fans in England than I have anywhere in the entire world. That's what he said to me. I said, man, he goes, trust me, England, when I go to England, it's nuts. He says, they are nuts for me over there. And I said, hmm, 
Interesting. I never went with him to England, so it's he's probably right. David Cassidy, rock star. He was. And you know, you hit the nail on the head. That's why David loved the fan base in England. Because he wasn't he wasn't hearing Keith, 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 Partridge, blah, blah, blah. You know, he I I would I would imagine his concerts in the United States were everybody screaming Keith to him. Yeah. You know, everybody Patrick's family, get up, the shirts, the everything, you know, you know, and 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 that that did drive him a little bit batty. He's still there as that image, which is everything he never really wanted to be. He didn't want to be. That's a fact. He did not want to be Keith Partridge. He wanted to be Mick Jagger. He wanted to be Paul McCartney. He didn't want to be Keith Partridge. Keith Partridge held him back because everybody was in love with Keith Partridge. Not He didn't. He never got the respect he probably deserved and really wanted as a rock and roller because of Keith Partridge. That's a fact. Was being a horse owner important to him? Yes. Yes, because it was very, because it was the business that he loved. Like when he had, when David had hit a wall, and that was divorce, financial troubles, uh, you know, chapter seven, couple of lawsuits. Like it was a culmination of many things that hurt David financially. And you can't be a horse owner. Horses are expensive. I I would give David pieces of horses just to keep him involved in the game. I wanted him there. It was very important to him. And David would would still have his name on the program next to mine. And we, we you know, he owned the horse and I wouldn't even charge him i mean he, he was that good a friend to me right. and i would and he would just you know because he did have that he did hit that bad couple years where things just that did not go his way mm. so uh and we all do we all do you know very rarely you're 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 blessed if you don't hit that that bad time you know in life you know it happens yeah but it was very important for david to stay in touch with the racetrack and that's that was his first love he never till the day he passed he was at the racetrack with me every time i went there if i went to if i would winter half my stable in florida and every time i ran a horse at gulfstream park david would be there and we'd have lunch together and we'd go to the paddock and we'd hang out and everything else because he was right across the river in fort lauderdale we would uh we would we would spend days on end together when I went, when I was in Florida. So with this passion for horse racing, did he ever seriously think about becoming a trainer and making that total commitment? No, never. Because his expertise was not in the day-to-day rigors of being a trainer. Mm -hmm. And while I don't know this for sure, let's face it, David was a rock star and rock stars don't wake up at 4.30 in the morning and a 12 degree morning and go take care of horses. (laughs) I'm sorry, no matter how much you love them, you show up when it warms up and you hang out on the table outside the barn and you read the racing form, okay? I can't see, I could never see. David's about going to sleep when I'm getting up and going to the track. 
um, I guess from what you're saying, I mean, he led such a public private life. So while fame can bring you so many privileges and advantages, it can also feel like a prison. Yes. And David felt that quite often. David felt that. And, you know, so we had, so I made sure that his escape was the racetrack. And I made sure that he was going to be able to enjoy his day at the racetrack and not have to be bothered by, by strangers who, you know, who wanted this or that. And my, the word was out in my barn. You do not bother David Cassidy with music stuff. You just leave him be when he comes to the barn. And everybody knew it. And most of my help were, you know, a lot of the help on the racetrack are from other countries. So they really didn't know him. But the young girls who ride the horses and stuff, they were always enamored with David. But the rule was, look, you can talk to David, but you can't swoon over David. David, this is David's happy place. And we're going to make sure that it remains that way for him. And that's the way it was. And I think that's why he he loved me so much is because he could escape that. And at the races, he could escape also because his box was in a, a kind of a restricted area. And it was nice. And when David wanted to interact, he got up and he interacted. But he, did, he didn't have to be overwhelmed with it. Because you know, if you if you allowed it to be, there would be a line of people wanting his autograph every mm. single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, and, and talk to me, I want to talk to you, I want this, I want, it, you know, he, we made sure this was David's happy place. And he would spend a lot of time with you and your wife and family. Oh yeah, he would come stay at our house. If we had a party, he would come to my house. You know, I had a farm, a beautiful farm upstate New York. And uh, we still live upstate New York. But uh, David would come to our, our house. He would come to all the parties. He was very, very close to my wife. And, uh, you know, and he would call her out of the blue. And David would call me. David would call me at 3 o'clock in the morning. And my wife would say, phone's ringing. I'll bet it's David. And sure enough, you know, he would need to talk to somebody. He would, you know, I always answered the phone when it was David and uh, my door was always open to David and he would come and go as he pleased and and uh, he could do that. But he was very close to my wife. At times I'd say, hon, uh, you're not too close to David Cassidy. I, you know, he's, you know, he's David Cassidy. So, no, 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 no. I'm sure he would like that, but no, no, no. <laughs> David's great. David was the greatest, and he was both of our friends, and and as much my wife's friend as mine. I know how deep your your friendship was, and how much it it meant to him, and obviously to you. I mean, that's so so evident in everything that you're saying. I wonder if I could just take you back in your relationship with David to 2008. Okay. It was when you attended a fundraising gala for the Alcohol and Substance Abuse Prevention Council in Saratoga, which was where David revealed in a speech that he just spent time at the Betty Ford Clinic and was announcing publicly with his family by his side that he was an alcoholic. I wondered how much courage you felt it took for him to say that. He kind of took me off guard. 
Okay. Like I knew that he was called to be the guest speaker at this function. And I knew that David was an alcoholic. I mean, I knew, I knew that. And, um, and when I say alcoholic, don't, don't get me wrong. Alcoholics aren't the guys laying in the street, you know, with the bottle or anything like that. Alcoholics are people that need to drink every day. And that doesn't mean you're sloshing drunk. That doesn't mean you're ignorant drunk, anything like that. But it's when you know you have a problem. That's an alcoholic. And David, we, I knew he was an alcoholic and I knew he had gone through rehab. And I was, I was absolutely, I was very proud of him, uh, what he had to say to that group. And it was, it, it took courage, but I think that it, when, when somebody like David Cassidy or somebody that you, that the world admires alludes to the fact that they're not perfect. It really helps others who are suffering the same affliction. And I think that probably was very, very important to many people that were in that room to hear what he had to say, you know, Hey, it's not just, it's not just mailmen. It's not just school bus drivers. It's not just, you know, your average ordinary Joe, it's David Cassidy too. I also have a problem with alcohol and, uh, and, you know, so I think it was very meaningful and it was, it was pretty amazing to hear him say that. Cause I didn't know what was coming. He just told me, let's go, you know, we'll, we'll go into this thing tonight. And my wife and I went and his wife was there and Bo and, uh, I had no idea what he was going to talk about. I just thought it was another Saratoga fundraiser and we were going to bid on auction items and silent auctions and, you know, and have a few drinks. And then when I realized when we got there, oh, geez, this is uh, alcohol and substance abuse. And, and David's the guest speaker. I said, this could be interesting for sure. Yeah. And it was. He, was, he was good. He was powerful that night. And you must have found that very difficult to watch and to hear. Well, did it? You know, I lived it with David, you know, I mean, I knew David was drinking too much and I knew David uh, hadn't had a problem. And, and, you know, so I was aware of the issue, but I was, I was more proud than anything to hear him talk about it. I was like, man, that takes a lot of courage to get up there and tell the whole world that you have a problem and admit to that problem, it's a, it's not an easy thing. And it was amazing, you know, and not far, not, not far, fast forward, not far, David actually fell off the wagon again. You know, this is something David struggled with his entire life, but he was never, ever, you never saw David sloppy drunk. You never saw David um, you know, you never saw, he never stumbled. He never, he never did stupid things that, you know, real bad, stupid drunks do. You never, I, I would guess that the world, I knew David. So I knew those few little subtle things when David had been drinking and, but to the world, nobody would assume that nobody would assume that from David. David had a very good way of covering it up. He was very good at drinking and and doing his day to day stuff. Sure. So 
you know, but uh, yeah, I was very proud of David that day. And it, it's a difficult thing. I don't think I could have stood up in front of that group and said what he said. Uh, but you never, but he was bound and determined and he wanted everybody to know, Hey, I'm not perfect. And I'm just like a lot of people in this room, you know, and it was, it was a great speech. He, mm. One thing about David, he could captivate an audience, whether he was talking or playing the guitar or singing, he could captivate an audience. And he, he had, he had that audience in the palm of his hand that night. He obviously wanted to change because he said that night, it's a journey now, every day, 24 hours to stay sober. But he did, as you say, fall back into whatever demons, whatever triggers there were in his life. That It was something he, from the outside, was never able to, to give up. And interestingly, we never talked about it. He didn't talk about his struggles with alcohol. He had them. I didn't judge. I didn't drink in front of him if I was with him. When was the last time that you'd actually seen him? I saw him about two weeks before he passed, and then he went down to Florida. And uh, and then, you know, we just talked a few times during those two weeks. And, and David called me from the hospital, and he said, oh, man, I'm in the hospital. They don't like... They don't, they, I took a blood test and, and they don't like my liver enzymes and man, they're putting me through all these tests and I'm hoping to get out of here this week. And two days later he passed and I'm like, I can't believe this. Yep. And uh, I was just like, I can't believe this. I can't believe David passed. My wife freaked out. You know, we just, everybody knew him freaked out because David went into that hospital just thinking it was, you know, some kind of nonsense, you know, they're just getting put him through some tests. He didn't realize how dire the situation was. And he didn't share it. Had you seen a decline? Oh, yeah, I did. But I Not, not but, to the extent that you thought. No, no, because yeah. there were days when, you know, David was getting older. David was in his 60s. I mean, I, I saw that kind of decline, you know, and, and David always had uh, very sore feet you know, from being on stage and dancing and all the things that he did. So I saw that kind of decline. And I saw the Dr. Phil show, you know, when he, Dr. Phil had him on, which was awful. And I saw the videotape of the B.B. King show where he seemed like he was kind of lost, you know, and that was at B.B. King's in Manhattan. You know, I so I saw the decline that everybody else saw. But in between, he was David. You know, I mean, he wasn't, uh, he it wasn't, you know, I know David well enough to know exactly what happened at BB Kings, to know exactly what, you know, what's, what was going on in his life. But who am I to say anything? You know, if he wanted to talk about it, I'd talk about it with him. If he wanted to not talk about it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to him about it. But you never thought for one moment, I must go and see him. No. He wasn't, he didn't drop 50 pounds and, you know, lose the color in his skin. And, you know, I mean, he, he didn't look like he was going to pass. He looked like David Cassidy. He looked the same. He was, he was quite normal when he passed, you know, but I, I didn't, you know, but I guess, you know, when you, when you have liver problems, it's like you, it's a very quick, you know, it's, it's, it's bad and it's fast. How did you hear the news? Some a good friend called Dr. Belinsky, and Dr. Belinsky was as good a friend to David 
if not better than me. You know, I mean, Belinsky was is a great guy, and he opened his doors to David. And you know, David did concerts for his horse rescue and his animal rescue and stuff. But I, I believe David, um, I believe Dr. Belinsky called me and told me, or I might have just heard it on the radio. I was like, you know, I, I can't remember how I heard it, but I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned because you couldn't make me believe it. He didn't, he, he, when I talked to him two days before he passed, he, he didn't talk like he was suffering. Like he just sounded like he was more aggravated having to be there than anything else. Obviously deeply upsetting time for everybody. You must have though felt very proud to have been involved with his wish to have his ashes scattered at Saratoga. Yeah. I was so proud that I didn't even ask if I could do it because I knew that they would say no. He wanted his asses scattered on the racetrack. And one thing about New York, it's such BS red tape, everything you want to do. You have to get a permit. You have to get permission. You have to get this. You have to get that. Now, because I'm sure somebody would have said, well, we're not going to let you spread his ashes there. That's not sanitary or that's not, you know, or, or, or this or that, or this horse's, tr you know, who knows what New York would have said, but I've seen them say no to many people over the years that passed that wanted their ashes scattered there. So I knew it wasn't going to happen. So I just arranged it and we had everybody show up. The track closes at 1030. We had everybody, people flew in from California. We had a group of about 60 people of David's closest friends. So we waited till 10.15 and I didn't tell anyone regarding racing. I didn't tell the Naira management. I didn't tell the CEO. I didn't ask permission from the racing organization. I didn't say anything to anybody. We had David's ashes in a big plastic bag and I had my, one of my horses and my riders cut a hole in the bottom of the plastic bag and galloped the horse around the track with all this dust coming out of the bag and we did the whole racetrack and there's this big cloud of smoke and the horse sees the smoke and the horse starts freaking out and the horse is rearing up and carrying on and we're spreading David's ashes and all the people are going <gasps> and some you know at Saratoga the place is so full of people you know people with cameras and everything else that a lot of people took pictures of it hmm. and uh sure enough you know one of the pictures was published and and I told them what we were doing and uh I just I didn't ask permission because I don't think we, we would have ever been granted permission to do that. Somebody would have found fault with it. So I just went ahead and did it. But that's what David wanted. Well, actually, we planted a tree and we put a plaque up where right in that area where we started that. And that's sitting there at Saratoga. We have a David Cassidy bench in the in the Hall of Fame. So we, we we've done we've, we've done our due diligence. That's for sure. Do you believe in the afterlife? Do I believe in the afterlife? My wife certainly does. And I hope there's an afterlife. There's a lot of people I'd like to see that are no longer with me. I mean, I lost, I grew up in an interesting, interesting era. I lost a lot of my high school friends in Vietnam. I, uh, 
I, you know, I, we, I've had many animals over the years that I adored that, you know, died, you know, after 10 or 12 years or whatever, dogs, the cats. And I would love, you know, I, I'd love to see my grandmother again. I'd love to think that I could see everybody that meant something to me, but I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I really don't, I really haven't given it a thought. I want to be cremated also. I want my ashes spread. I don't really care where you spread them as long as it's someplace outdoors where there's like nature. I love deer. I'm a, I'm a fanatic for deer and horses. So I just want my ashes spread. And, you know, I, I, I'm torn as to whether there's an afterlife and we're going to see all these people that we love so much or if we just, or if it just goes black and our spirit goes to another place, you know, I just don't know. See, after the ashes were, were spread, you asked David for some help, didn't you? I did. I talked to David all the time. I talk to him even now. I talk to him all the time. I'm like, David, boy, did I screw this up, man. What do you, what do you think? You know, I, I talk to him all the time. I did ask David for help. I just said, David, I, I ran in a very big race shortly thereafter. And I said, David, man, I take all the help I can get on this one because I was 20 or 30 to one. And it was a, you know, a million dollar grade one race. And uh, I won it. And I, and uh, somebody asked me in a winter circle, Hey, uh, did, you, did you talk to over with David Cassidy before? I said, I sure did. <laughs> you know, and even now when I, like, I did something, I did something I shouldn't have done and it involved my wife. And I said, David, you know, I, I really screwed up. And David, uh, I have to get out of this mess. I got you out of a few messes in your life. I need you to get me out of this mess. And I got out of it. I, I, I did okay. I, I fared well after that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I talk to David all the time, but he doesn't talk back, but I, I do talk to him. I do I do let my thoughts go to him and I think about him all the time. Well, if you ask the spirit world for help, they will find a way to help you. It's amazing. Especially if you give, you receive. And I know that very, very well. How did his death affect the thoroughbred racing community? Well, the people that knew David really uh, mourned his death. And the racing community is, uh, is a strange community. You know, people die that that meant so much to racing. And there's like one day of mourning and then the next day nobody talks about him anymore. I mean, they, I, they took the name off of David Cassidy's box, like within days of David's passing. And it's like, I'm like, this is, you know, it, it's the, the racing, the powers that be in racing are not always the greatest people in the world. But I can tell you the people on the backstretch really missed David, the regular people. Those that run racing could care less because they can't make a buck off of David anymore. You know, but uh, the, the powers that the, the people on the backside, the lives that David touched on a regular basis, they were, you know, they were beside themselves. Everybody loved David. Now you set up in his memory, the I Think I Love You Foundation. I did. Yeah. Can you tell me what led to you forming this and explain its core values? <laughs> There's a lot of David Cassidy fans out there. Most of them are female. Okay. And they are borderline fanatics. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what, what better word for it. They live, eat, breathe, sleep, David Cassidy. Still to this day, you go on Facebook, it's all David Cassidy, David Cassidy, David Cassidy. I'm like, don't these people work? You know, it's all about David. So 
all of his fans, the first thing they did was they wanted to have a tribute concert for David Cassidy. And they wanted me to play with David Cassidy's original band. And they made it happen. We had a, we had a show in Saratoga. Place was sold out. We had a beautiful show. And I got to meet all these women that put this show together. And I became friendly with them. It was the first time I'd ever met them. You know, I might have seen them at concerts, but I never met them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we had a greater interaction. And as much as I would like to take credit for the I Think I Love You Foundation, they reached out to me and they said, Gary, we want to set up a foundation in David's name and we want you to be president. I said, well, look, I can't, I don't have time to be president, but I'll be on the board of directors. I'm happy to do it. And I'm happy to guide the organization and be a, be the face of the organization if you need me to, but let's have some, one of you guys be present, president, because you, it's a lot of work. I'm the president of the Acceler Fund, which is an animal rescue. And, uh, and that takes up a lot of my time. So they put together the I Think I Love You Foundation and it's in David's honor. And what we do is we support horses in need. And the most needy horses are horses. Let's face it, in football, plenty of times the athletes have career-ending injuries. Mm. Baseball, career-ending injuries. Uh, every sport, there is some of the greatest players, they end up someday having a career-ending injury. And horses have career-ending injuries, yet they continue to cost five, $600 a month to take care of, even though they may never, uh, they're not in pain, but they may never be useful to do anything else again. And, they're, and yet they gave so much of their life to people in, when they were racehorses that we, uh, we take, we raise money to support horses in need that are no longer at the racetrack. And there is a lot of them out there. And as president of the Acceler Fund, I, our organization supports 153 horses. We have satellites, satellite farms all over the United States. And we also set up the equine program at the Tulsa Boys Home for disadvantaged youths, the Wall Kill Correctional Facility for prisoners. And so the I Think I Love You Foundation has taken over, has also adopted some racing warriors that can't, that have no future, that need constant veterinary care and constant care. And we're raising money to support horses because we know that's what David would want. And I am an advisor, I'm on the board of directors, and uh, that's what we do. And that is what David would want. And, uh, you know, we're, we're new but we are, we are a um, not-for-profit and we have tax-exempt status and, you know, all the donations are tax-exempt. We're constantly trying to raise money because we're going to keep continuing to help horses with the money that we raise. And as you say, that was a cause very close to his heart. It was. It was. Because he loved, you know, he loved horses when their career was over. He loved them. He was enamored with them. And, you know, his, his love fell on broodmares, you know, primarily, but he loved those racing warriors. None of his horses that, that raced for him went for, you know, disappeared. They all, he took care of them in the after, 
in their retirement as well. Because he would have loved to have won the Kentucky. Every horse owner. You know, David wasn't a guy that had 20 horses in training. David would have one or two. So if you consider the fact that every year there's 24,000 horse babies born, you have a two out of 24,000 chance of going to the Derby. Right. You know, that's basically the odds on everybody who wants to be a, win the Derby. Are you a, a disciplined trainer? Are you very much a, a stickler? Well, in my youth, I was a stickler. Now I am, I am a stickler, but I am, but I am a teacher. I used to, um, I was a stickler and I used to scream. You could hear me on a clear night. You could hear me screaming in England when I was in New York. Okay. I was, I, I thought that that was the way to teach people how to do something right. But uh, I realized in my wisdom, as I grew older, that it took just as much effort to sit down and teach somebody the right way to do something as I can yell for two or three minutes, or I can show them for two or three minutes how to do that, the thing that I'm angry about correctly. And that's what I learned. So yes, I am a stickler, but I am not afraid to get dirty. And that's what I think my help and people in this business admire about me is I will roll up my sleeves, you know, kneel in horse poop, get it all over my pants and everything else in order to show somebody the right way to do something. So yes, I am a stickler, but I'm a much better teacher than when I used to scream at him. But the, I, the, the end result was the same, but I have a better way of doing it now. Tell me, if you were in charge of the New York Racing Association, what would you do? The New York Racing Association is the worst run organization in the world. They are, the management is completely disconnected from the racing. They're all about how much money they can make. If I ran Naira, and I almost did when Charlie Haywood was CEO, he was going to hire me as director of racing. And, it, and Charlie ended up losing his job, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I would, there's a wall. It's like the Berlin Wall. Horse, the management of New York Racing is on one side of that wall. And the, the players, the performers, the horses, and the fans are on the other side of that wall. I would knock that wall down and I would make racing interactive. I would, I would let the fans interact with the players and get a, an education about racing and make the racetrack not about how quickly can we suck the dollars out of your pocket, but about going to the racetrack and enjoying yourself for a day. I would concentrate on making it better for the fans, making it better for the trainers, making the trainers interact with the fans, let the, the horses interact with the fans more. We have a wall in management. Management is all about making money and what the bottom line is. And I would make, I would want all racetracks in New York to be more like Saratoga. For some reason, Saratoga is the is a place where people want to go with their families and their children because they're thoroughly entertained. There are minstrel shows and clowns and makeup and, and food trucks and everything else, but they don't do that at any other track. They just don't care. And, and management doesn't seem to care. 
and I, I would I would make racing a destination if it was up to me. Everything is a destination. You go to a baseball game. It's not just nine in, innings of baseball. In between innings, it's it's interaction with the fans. It's autographs. It's kids. It's jumpy houses. It's things for people to do. Sports venues, successful sports venues, know how to entertain the fans. Horse racing, no. It's a bunch of old men cursing and chewing tobacco and spitting on the ground and, and yelling at the horses and screaming at the jockeys and everything else. What We need to make racing into a destination. And, and they've never made an effort outside of Saratoga to make that happen. I'm astonished to hear that because over here, it is very much fan-driven. Yes, it's a destination. How about Newmarket? Uh, tucks and tails and the top hats and yes. make it a destination. People live for that stuff. They love it. Yes. They love it. When we have the Epsom Derby, we have a ladies day where you get oh. stuff in all your finery and your, your hats yeah. and it puts sport onto the news pages. Right. And when you go into Belmont park, the first sign you see as you're driving into Belmont park in big letters, it says no tailgating. No tailgating. If it was up to me, come on, tailgate, bring your kids, throw a football. We'll have betting windows outside. We'll have a flat screen TV. You can watch the races. We want you at the races, not chase you, not chase you away. And, and New York racing does a great job of keeping people away and not making it a destination. Will you ever get the opportunity? If you look at the history of naira the current ceo of naira was the head of accounting was the head of the money side of the racing his predecessor was the ceo at toys r us and naira hired him his predecessor was the ceo of calvin klein jeans and naira hired him his predecessor was another non-horse person until horse racing embraces a horseman, I would take that job in a minute. I'd do it for free if if I could get myself in the door. And but I just don't. I just don't think that that's that's ever going to happen. I do not believe it's ever going to happen. That's a tragedy because you would be a, fi a fine ambassador for the sport. Well, I'd love to be, and I've I've actually yelled till I turned red in the face, you know, into the wind. You know, you yell at the wind. Uh, but I've done everything I can do to get on the management side of racing, and I have yet to get a bite. And, you know, I have somebody say, hey, let's talk about that. You might work out really well here. But no, because I don't, I'm not a Harvard grad. I'm an Aqueduct racetrack grad. I'm a Roosevelt racetrack grad. I'm a Belmont grad. I know everything there is to know about the horse racing industry, but I didn't learn it in a college. I learned it hands-on. And they don't seem to want that kind of person. How common is that, though, with big companies? Very. It's all about the bottom line. Right. It is. There's a way to, to do the bottom line, yet have an open door policy and, and make racing great. But they don't, I don't think they see themselves as a sports venue. I think they see themselves as horse racing only. But every sports venue is successful because people want to go there. They have things they can do that 
takes their time and that interests them. You know, you'd be amazed at the things that could be done to make horse racing a lot more interesting for people. One thing that we've had over here for a number of years is during the summer, we have uh, music nights at race courses. So as soon as the racing is finished, some of our top groups like Simply Red. And that is as well. brilliant. And so when the racing is finished, and as the sun is going down over the race course, you've got live music playing. from. Some and you have young there. people coming in who might get to watch a race or two before the band comes on and might actually like it. They don't see this as a way of developing. You know, I would, I've always, I preached to Charlie Hayward and believe me, he was going to, I was going to run racing in New York. You have to go, you have to touch the outlying communities for the area where your racetrack is Mm. and say, what do those people want? What it what attracts those people? And and if the local high school football team wins the championship, you need to have that football team and all their parents and all their friends as as guests of honor at Belmont Racetrack for the day, because those are all people who have never been to the races before, and some of them are gonna like it and come back again. Exactly. And, and you're touching the community, you're show, you're putting your heart out to that community, touch the pulse of what's going on in that community. If the community is ethnic, well, that ethnicity we need to have. If if it's if you know that eighty percent of the population outside the gate of Belmont Racetrack happens to be Jamaican, there should be a Jamaican day at Belmont Racetrack and bring in the Jamaican performers and everything. Whatever it is, I'm just saying that it's not. But touch the touch the pulse of the outlying community in, in like a, a 10 mile radius and find out what makes those people tick and what they wanna be doing on the weekends and make it happen in your backyard and bring those people to the races, but they don't see it. It's interesting, something else you said earlier on, if you've got children at school who really can't adapt to education and they find something like maths very difficult, if you were to introduce them to a stable weights and measures through horses it might make mathematics a little bit more interesting it might make biology more interesting i give barn tours and i in in the last years that i was in new york i was giving barn tours to high school kids and horse racing is all about efficiency if you can make your horse more efficient it's a game of inches you, you gain three inches, you might be winning as opposed to running third. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about, and, and they found that so amazing about the mathematics of a horse's stride and the analysis. We do stride analysis and we, you know, how much, how, by the time the hind legs push off, how far does that horse travel before he hits the ground? And it's usually about 26 feet. And it's like, you know, and kids find that amazing. And you're right. You hit it on the nose. Maybe those kids who are having a hard time with school would be a lot more in tune to this roundabout school with, with involving horses because horses yes. are amazing animals. They, they heal. They teach everything. They're very intuitive as well. They are. They are. I used to bring in kids that were um were special kids 
yep. okay? The AHRC um, would bring in kids and I have horses that would bite you and, and you know, inflict extreme pain on you. And I'd have like six or seven special kids running around the barn and I'm like, you know, thinking about, you know, oh my gosh, they're too close to that one. They're too, and horses protect children. It's amazing. Horses will not hurt the innocent. They only hurt the non-innocent. <laughs> they, they will not hurt the innocent. It's a, horses are amazing protectors of children. You could walk into a stable one morning and know exactly that something is not right. Absolutely. Walk in. Yeah. I feel it. Mm-hmm. I can look at a horse and I know something's not right. Just by the way, just from his body language inside his stall. And I, I'm, I'm right most of the time. That yeah. is a wonderful gift for anybody to have. It is. It, really it is. is. I'm, I'm blessed to have that gift. You've been blessed to have David as a very close friend. What is your fondest memory of him? My fondest memory of David. <laughs> One time, we David was asked to play with his band at a fundraiser for the, let me think, Columbia County Dog and Cat Rescue, which is up in Saratoga, up near Saratoga. Okay. And I knew I was going to have to play. I, I knew that I was going to have to play. It didn't matter. And, you know, the, the concert's going to be at three o'clock in the afternoon and everybody there was there for a, the fundraiser, right? And the band is up on stage and everybody's like, where's David? And, you know, every once in a while, not very often, but every once in a while, David would be either late or forget to show up somewhere or something like that. So we're all thinking, man, did David screw up? Is, is he not coming? The band is there. I'm there. Everybody's there. All of a sudden, way off in the distance, there's this person on a white horse. And the horse, it's almost like the end of, uh, what's that show? Um, oh, my goodness. Anyway, David come, comes galloping through the field on this white horse, and he rides the he rides the horse all the way into the show, right up to the stage. And somebody knew he was coming because the the crowd split. He rides straight down the middle. The horse stops at the stage. He steps off the horse, and he's on stage. And he goes, and they stop playing. It was amazing. That's my fondest memory of David because I didn't know he was doing that. Like whoever he arranged that with, he didn't tell me, he didn't tell anybody. The band didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody knew. Maybe Belinsky knew because it was Belinsky's farm that held the fundraiser. But he came riding in on a white horse. It was pretty cool. Every time, Gary, you speak about him, you're smiling. I am because he's, he's just amazing guy. I, I love him. I've enjoyed every minute with you. Thank you. Thank you you for being so honest and giving me so much of your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank (laughs) you. Alrighty. Have a great day. Thank you for listening and downloading this podcast. Thanks also to Gary for joining me today. All links to Gary's social media platforms and the I Think I Love You Animal Foundation can be found in the show notes which accompany this episode. Remember, you can find us on all podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Subscribe anywhere for free 
so you know when new episodes are released. So until we connect again, take care. Yeah.